I'm Jasmine Nicole, and you are tuned in to Seasoned Crime. OMG, I'm so happy to be back with you guys. I really didn't plan on taking two weeks off, but I had to check myself and realize that I needed it. So that move that I've been talking about for the past few months, it finally happened. And I love, love, love everything about my new place. However, the move itself was way more than what I expected. And then when I was done with all that, I still needed a little bit to get settled and just get my life back together. One thing that took me over 30 years to realize is that it's okay to take a break when you need it. It's not being lazy or unproductive, but you have to know when your body just needs a minute to regroup. And you have to take it. Overworking yourself or working yourself to death is not okay. You're literally working yourself to death. And I don't know about y'all, but I'm trying to live. I can live and work at the same time. You just got to figure out how to ground yourself and group yourself. And that's where I was at. So I took a much needed and what I feel was a well-deserved break and now I'm back. And to be honest, I feel the best that I felt in a long time. During this time that I took off, the world just kept going as usual. Things happened, most notably the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. It's disgusting. (laughs) I, I, I really have no other words to say. I honestly cannot believe that here in 2022, this is where we have come to as a country. This is something that I feel really strong about and any woman for any reason should have the right to choose what to do with their body. You may never choose to get an abortion or you may choose to get an abortion. You may have never gone through anything that'll bring you to that stage, or you may know someone who's gone through it, but no matter what, it is a choice that is made. It's so crazy to me, like these same people were, you know, throwing a fit over, you know, wanting to mask or no mask or making it a choice. You know, we shouldn't be forced to wear a mask, my body, my rights, all that bullshit that they were saying back then. And now those same people are the ones who are somehow anti-choice. And then it's just crazy to me that, um, I mean, you're forcing people to bring children into this world, children that they either, you know, for whatever reason, again, it's no one's decision or no one's, no one has to explain why that is a choice that's made, but you're forcing these people to bring these kids into the world, but yet we don't have universal health care. Yet it costs thousands of dollars for a woman to even have a baby in the hospital. Yet we are currently going through a formula shortage. I mean, this country, it's like the baby's only good when it's inside the womb. But when it's outside of the womb, you're on your own. Like we ain't got shit to do with it. But when you're inside the room, we're going to regulate everything that goes on. It, It's mind blowing to me. It makes no sense. Um... I could go on and on all day about that. So I'm going to stop and I am going to get to the reason why everyone's here. And that is for a crime. Today's main course is going to be about a serial killer that also raped. 
So please listen with caution if that is any kind of trigger for you. Today I'm going to bring you a story out of the Metroplex here of Fort Worth, Texas. I'm going to tell you about Kenneth Granville. In Fort Worth on August 4th, 1950, Kenneth Granville was born. His mom, Willie Mae, raised him and his half-brother, Anthony Jones. From early on, Kenneth was, he was a bit odd. He kept himself, he was very isolated, and he didn't really have a lot of friends. Not just that, but he didn't really acknowledge girls at all either, which stood out, especially at an age where that's literally all boys are thinking about. At the age of 16, Kenneth went into his mom's room and he grabbed her by the throat. He attempted to rape her, but she was able to hold him off. She fought back as much as she could. It was, it was like he was there physically, but mentally, that wasn't her son. Kenneth was out of it. At some point during their scuffle, Kenneth seemed to snap back into himself, and when he did so, he stumbled out onto the front porch, and then he just collapsed in the front yard. Willie Mae quickly called the police, and they came, got Kenneth, and they took him into custody. They didn't take him to jail, though. Instead, he was admitted to John Peter Smith Hospital, which, just a little side note, put it out there, that was the hospital that I was born in. Shout out to JPS. Anyways, he, they took him to JPS, and they kept him there for 10 days before they released him. Well, whatever tools and things that they utilized while he was in the hospital, none of it took because soon after he was released, Kenneth attempted to sexually assault his half-brother. At that point, they weren't taking any more chances. So Kenneth was sent to Gatesville State School, and he was kept there for two and a half years. This time when Kenneth was released, things seemed to be going better. He got out, he got a job at a letter manufacturing company, and if you talk to the people who worked there with him, they said Kenneth was great. He was an employee that they could count on. He was really reliable and kind, and even his neighbor said that he was a good person. He was great with the kids in the area, and he was constantly in church, and he was an active member of the church. He was doing so great in life that he was drafted to serve as a machine gunner in Vietnam. But it was here where things started to slip backwards for Kenneth. Kenneth was dishonorably discharged from Vietnam after he was accused of beating up some of his fellow soldiers. Through that, though, he did have a girlfriend who was by his side to help him get through all of it. Erveline Gold was dating Kenneth at the time. Erveline was the oldest of three from the McClendon family. She remained by his side, but she would later on speak to the fact that Kenneth was sometimes violent towards her whenever they would argue. October 8th of 1974, Kenneth was driving around in an area of Fort Worth, and he got to the Riverside Village Apartments. And what seems to be out of nowhere, Kenneth got the urge to have sex with one of the McClendon sisters. So remember, he was dating Irveline, but that's not the one he wanted. Kenneth's mind was set on Irveline's 21-year-old sister, Laura. He went over to the apartment where the family lived, and they knew him, so they invited him in, 
and told him to come get a drink of water. There were multiple members of the family who were living in that apartment at the time. That was Laura, the one who he went over there for, her 19-year-old sister, Linda, their 24-year-old cousin, Martha, and two kids that were each two years old, Stephen and Natasha. So when Kenneth was let in, he went to the kitchen because, again, they invited him in to get a drink of water. So he walked to the kitchen, and at the time in the kitchen was Laura and one of the toddlers, Stephen. While he was in the kitchen, Kenneth grabbed a steak knife, and he ordered Laura and the kid to go into the bedroom, and he demanded that she tie the kid up with a telephone cord. Other family members heard the commotion and they came to see what was going on. And when they came in the room, they also ended up being tied and gagged. So again, remember, the main reason he came over is because he wanted to have sex with Laura. So once he had everyone tied up and they were unable to stop him, he got Laura, took her in another room, and he raped her. Natasha, one of the toddlers, started crying and it was throwing off Kenneth's whole thing. So what did he do? He stabbed her with the knife that he had gotten from the kitchen. That's right, Natasha, who was two years old at the time. After stabbing her, he threw her body on the floor and then stabbed her some more. Linda managed to get free. She ran into the room. However, she was no match for Kenneth. He had full control over her, and he would end up strangling her to death with a cloth. Things didn't stop there. Kenneth moved on to Stephen, who he had shoved in a closet, and he stabbed him so many times that the handle on the knife broke. That wasn't enough to quit because Kenneth just went and got another knife from the kitchen, and then he went back and continued to rape Laura. Once he had enough of Laura, he fatally stabbed her to death. By now, the only person left alive in the home was Martha. So Martha was still tied up in the same room that her cousin had just been raped and killed in. Kenneth talked to her for a bit and Martha, she did her best to hold a conversation. I'm sure hoping that if she talked to him, um, she could maybe convince him to keep her alive. However, that didn't go well. Kenneth would end up stabbing her to death. Everyone in this house was dead. So Kenneth got up, emptied out all the purses, took all the money and the valuables that he could find, and then he left. It wasn't until the family's stepdad came by later on that day. He had showed up to take two of the women to work, and when he walked in, he found the entire household dead. This was a tragic situation and the police investigated this and they came up with two suspects, but Kenneth wasn't one of them. The, the two suspects that they came to the conclusion did this crime were two Mexican nationals who ended up being arrested for these crimes. Kenneth himself, he was never even looked at for this. Less than five months later, on February 8th of 1975, Kenneth once again felt the urge, but this time 
the urge was to kill. He was able to get his 24-year-old friend Betty Williams over to his place by telling her that he would give her a pack of cigarettes. Betty was in Kenneth's room just looking around and Kenneth came up from behind her and somehow managed to turn her upside down, which temporarily made her dizzy. He undressed her and then he started to rape her. However, he was interrupted by his friend, 21-year-old Vera Hill. Vera had stopped by to ask him some questions about income taxes. When Vera came over, she knocked on the door, but before she was able to fully come in, Kenneth had went into the kitchen and got a knife. So when she opened the door to walk in, Kenneth lunged at her and stabbed her in the chest, the stomach, and the back. He kept stabbing her until she fell to the ground. After that, Kenneth went back to Betty, who was still in the room, and he picked up right where he left off with his assault. And that led to him beating and stabbing her. Betty wasn't dead, though. She was still breathing. But Kenneth was over it, so he left the apartment and he drove around town. He stopped at a friend's house and he asked to come in and use their phone. Once he was inside, he raped the friend's mom and other family members that were there at the time. When he was done, he left that place, but he didn't leave alone. He kidnapped one of the daughters from the home and took her back to his apartment. He would then rape her, but suddenly he was stopped in the middle of it because he heard noises coming from the bedroom. Those noises were Betty, who was still alive, and she had gotten enough strength to where she was up trying to stop her bleeding. When Kenneth saw this, he was furious, and he started yelling at her to stop. She listened, and she stopped. And she would eventually end up dying right there on the floor. When all this was done, Kenneth, well, he started to feel a little bit guilty about what he'd done. The girl that he had kidnapped and raped was still alive, so he forced her into his car and he drove them over to Pilgrim's Galilee Baptist Church. Once he was at the church, he approached the pastor, Reverend Roy Lee Spearman, and he had him get in the car and Kenneth drove the kidnapped girl along with the pastor to the police station. On their way there, he told the pastor that he, quote, wanted to be taken out of society and he didn't want to hurt any other innocent people. So they got to the station and Kenneth asked for a homicide detective and they were given Detective F.D. Ralston who took Kenneth back into his office. When they got in the room, Kenneth took out a pistol and a butcher knife and he dropped those items on the table. He then asked for Lieutenant Oliver Bell who he knew was the lead detective that had been investigating the murders in Riverside Village. Detective Ralston left the room and he came back with Lieutenant Bell as well as District Attorney Rufus Attic. And with those three in the room, Kenneth confessed to all seven murders that he had committed. After his confession, Kenneth was immediately detained. The following day, officers went to his place and there they found the bodies of Vera and Betty. Kenneth was charged with seven counts of capital murder and one count of aggravated rape. 
these charges immediately made him eligible for the death penalty. He pled not guilty by reason of insanity. And during the investigation, police thought that Kenneth looked good for a few other unsolved murders in Texas. One of those was Carla Walker, who was abducted from a bowling alley in Fort Worth, February of 1974. Another was the murder of 18-year-old Mildred May, whose nude body was also found in Fort Worth along Highway 35. And lastly, they thought that he could have been a suspect in the 1974 murder of 18-year-old Cheryl Calloway, who had been stabbed 47 times with an ice pick in Arlington. Even though they had strong suspicions, they couldn't prove anything. So Kenneth was never charged in any of these cases, all of which are still unsolved. When the case went to court, the only murder that was up for trial was that of two-year-old Natasha. During the trial, multiple witnesses came forward to testify against Kenneth. Most of them spoke to how odd Kenneth's behavior had been before and after the murders. Kenneth's friends and co-workers said that the case was really big news in the area, and so it would just come up in casual conversation. Those that happened to speak with Kenneth about the case said that Kenneth himself said whoever committed those murders, quote, ought to be hung. Against objection of the defense, the judge allowed prosecutors to admit Kenneth's four-page-long confession as evidence. The prosecution felt like Kenneth was fully aware of everything that he had done. The defense... They brought in psychiatrists that claimed that Kenneth was a paranoid schizophrenic that was driven by uncontrollable sex. The defense brought in psychiatrists that claims that Kenneth was a paranoid schizophrenic that was driven by uncontrollable sexual impulses. It probably didn't help that Kenneth himself admitted in front of the jury that he was solely responsible for the killings and that he was just unable to control himself in the moment. After hearing all sides on May 5th, 1983, the jury unanimously convicted Kenneth of Natasha's murder with the recommendation that he be given the death penalty. Originally, Kenneth's execution date was scheduled for September 14th, 1977. And if he would have been executed at that time, Kenneth would have been the first inmate to be executed under the then new lethal injection. That didn't happen, though, because Kenneth's attorney challenged this, saying that the method was completely unconstitutional and it was more cruel than the previous method. The attorney's challenge was successful, and Kenneth was granted a temporary stay of execution. Kenneth would remain on death row for the next 20 years and three months until he was eventually executed by lethal injection. February 27th of 1996. He was pronounced dead only eight minutes after the injection. At the time, Kenneth was the longest serving condemned inmate in Texas to be executed. And there you have it. The horrendous crimes of Kenneth Granville. I just have to say, I am so happy to be back, to be back recording, even doing the research, which drives me crazy. I was so happy to just sit back down 
and start looking up a story and just get back in my groove. This podcast has become a part of my life. Um, It'll be one year in August and it has truly become part of my everyday routine. Um, And I am a person who, I will just speak for myself, I have gone through bouts and stages of depression and what I have found that works for me is a routine. Maintaining a routine, keeping a routine, that's what keeps my head leveled and keeps me good. And so not having any routine, for a little while it was good because again, I was exhausted from everything going on. But I also recognized that I couldn't go too long without putting my routine back into place. So with all that being said, make sure you follow the page on IG. Um, I have committed to being more active on the page. Um, I will be showing a little bit more of my personal life, but always make sure that the true crime, of course, stays first and foremost on everything with that page. And you can also just reach out to me there for any suggestions or just any kind of feedback in general. So again, that is at Season Crime on Instagram. And don't forget to rate and comment on the show as well as whatever. And don't forget to rate and comment on the show on whatever platform you listen on. I want to thank you so much for hanging out with me. Thank you for still sticking with me and going through the break. And I promise I will be back next week to tell you another story about a minority. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Season Crime. Today's episode was researched, edited, and recorded by your host, Jasmine Nicole.